Well, please take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and I will say good morning to everyone, particularly those that weren't here last night. It is uh, nice to see everyone here and looking forward to meeting some uh, new folks. I indicated last night this is my first time here, and uh, I've been warmly received, and uh, it's been a joy uh, thus far. Philippians chapter 2, and we'll begin reading at verse 1. Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 2. And verse 1, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Do all things without murmurings and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye, do ye joy and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. For I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ's. But ye know the proof of him, that, as a son with the Father, he hath served with me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope to send presently, so soon as I shall see how it will go with me. But I trust in the Lord that I also myself shall come shortly. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor, 
and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick nigh unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him therefore the more carefully, that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, that I may be the less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation, because for the work of Christ he was nigh unto death, not regarding his life to supply your lack of service toward me. It has been observed, and I'm sure you have heard this before, there are no perfect assemblies. If you are looking for one, you might as well give up now because there ain't such a thing around. There are no perfect churches. There are no perfect assemblies. But in the New Testament, in the record of the first century churches, we do have some, two at least, of which we have some detailed information about that we could say came pretty close. I think of Paul's uh, letters to the Thessalonians, in which he heartily commends them for their faithfulness, for their diligence, uh, for their uh, worldwide reputation uh, of evangelistic outreach. And he had a number of, uh, of very uh, sort of commendable things to say about the church at Thessalonica. And likewise, we find this in connection with his letter to the Philippians. He evidently had a very warm and loving relationship uh, with the Philippians, and they too seemed to be a thriving work uh, for God. And, uh, and we don't see any uh, of the kind of language Paul had to use when he wrote to the Corinthians or he wrote to the Galatians. Uh, as we mentioned last night, it is a very warm and engaging letter. But nonetheless, nothing is absolutely perfect when it comes to local churches. And even in the church of, uh, of, of, of the Philippians, the church at Philippi, there was just a little shadow of a problem that may have been developing. And so Philippians chapter 2, we might call it a, a gentle reminder to a thriving assembly. A gentle reminder uh, to a thriving assembly. In the first four verses of this chapter, he, he sends out a call to humility and lowliness in service. A call to humility and lowliness and service. By the time we get to chapter 4, we find Paul a little more explicit in addressing what was a little problem brewing in Philippi. Uh, there was conflict among some of the believers, Yodius and Syntyche, and he challenges them to be of the same mind in the Lord. There was just a little bit of friction. And that, of course, happens today, doesn't it? We know that. Uh, inevitably, we're human. Uh, we still have our old flesh working within us. And inevitably, these little difficulties and conflicts and frictions uh, can arrive, arise. The, uh, 
well-known brother Robert uh, Chapman, who I see there's a book there, uh, I think, about his life uh, on the table, wrote these words. I wrote it in the back of my Bible. He wrote these words, humility is the secret of fellowship and pride the secret of division. Humility is the secret of fellowship and pride the secret of division. Proverbs 13 and 10 says this, only by pride cometh contention. Only by pride cometh contention. That when there is contention, when there is conflict, often you can trace somewhere the root of that being uh, the display of pride. And pride is a wicked thing uh, because it is so pervasive. It, it seems to uh, find fertile soil in all of our hearts. Uh, I think it was C.S. Lewis called it the worst of all sins. It, it, was the, it, it was the sin of Satan himself in attempting to rise to a place uh, of honor beyond the honor that God had, gave, had given him. Uh, and so this call to humility and lowliness in, uh, in service is a practical one that we all need to hear. Now, you'll notice his uh, words. If we look at verse 2, he says, Fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And then he states it in a little more detail. He says in verse 3, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Now that's a big challenge, isn't it? Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. In other words, Paul is recognizing that it's possible even in assembly life and even in Christian service for us to do something that on the outside looks to be a spiritual service, but on the inside it is really done by strife and vain glory. Yet it's not for the glory of the Lord at all, it is really for our own glory. And it is possible as Christians for us to seek our sense of identity as Christians linked to how we might be perceived as others. And that becomes very important to some Christians. And so Paul warns the Philippian believers not to fall into that trap, but rather to serve with humility, to serve with, as he calls it here, lowliness of mind. Let each esteem other better than themselves. Now, as we look around our local assembly and we see one another gathered together for our meetings, for our conferences, for all the things we do, can I in all honesty say that my attitude is to esteem other better than myself? Esteem others better than than myself. Paul warned in the epistle to the Romans uh, that we were to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, but we are to think soberly. That is, we are to recognize the gift that God has given us, that God has given us all different gifts. And there he says it's governed by the measure of faith, that we don't all have the same capacity. 
that we all have a capacity given to us by God, and we are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, because there is that tendency within us, in the natural man, to do that. And so Paul says, to be lowly in mind, esteem others better than themselves. A call to humility and lowliness. And then he proceeds through the rest of the chapter to show us why this is true. And he does it by giving us four inspiring examples uh, and also one exhortation. And he, through the rest of the chapter, sort of builds his case why it is true that we should uh, allow nothing to be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, esteem other better than themselves. And these are what we could call the five reasons why we should walk in humility and lowliness. The first one is the submission of Christ, uh, the example of the submission of Christ, uh, verses 5 to 11. And then we have what we could call uh, the seriousness of our salvation, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling in verses 12 to 16. And then we have uh, the example of Paul, the sacrifice of Paul in verses 17 and 18. And then we have the, the selflessness of Timothy, verses 19 to 24. All seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ, in contrast to Timothy's selfless uh, service. And finally, we have the service, the example of the service of Epaphroditus, one of the, their own, uh, the Philippian believers who had been sent, dispatched as a messenger to deliver a gift to Paul in prison in Rome. And he was being sent back, and Paul cites him as an example uh, of outstanding service. Five reasons why we should walk in humility and lowliness. The first one, the submission of Christ. Now, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, uh, are certain, is certainly one of the great, uh, what we could call the Christological uh, portions of the Bible. As it goes into great detail, uh, describing for us the, what was involved in the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, of his coming into this world, of God becoming a man. Uh, of his life as a man, uh, of his dying and entering into death, uh, his victorious resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. It's a beautiful picture, and I'm sure you've heard many messages on Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 to 11. It provides us with a great deal of theological content, a great deal of doctrine uh, that stands to safeguard us against wrong ideas about the person of Christ and, and explains with, with, with crystal clarity as much as it's possible for us to grasp something so profound. It explains in crystal crystal clarity, uh, the profound mystery of the incarnation. 
But Paul's emphasis in this is to take it from what we might call a moral standpoint. That is, he is holding it up before us as a tremendous example that this kind of thing, uh, although we follow far behind, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ, but nonetheless, this kind of thing should characterize our lives. Um, this, this is really uh, what he's saying. In verse 2, he says, Fulfill ye uh, my joy that ye be like-minded. He wants us to have this mindset. Let this mind be in you, uh, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not going to take the time to analyze the whole section with you. I'm sure you've had messages many times uh, from these very profound verses of Scripture, and it's certainly very profitable to consider them really phrase by phrase. Every phrase almost is a message in itself. But we'll just select one idea uh, so we can move through the rest of the chapter uh, found in verse 8. It says this, And being found in fashion as a man... He humbled himself. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Now, it's often been observed that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, humbled himself as he left the glory of heaven and stepped into time and became a man. That was an act of humbling himself to leave the place of magnificent, eternal glory that was his. We can hardly get our minds around what it was like for the Son of God before he came into the world. He lived in absolute power and glory and majesty the full fellowship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for eternity. No beginning, no ending. Uh, he was dependent on no one. The self-existent God, the, the, the triunity of the Godhead, really a profound mystery. And he left the glory of heaven and he stepped into this world. And God became a man. He became something that he never was. Although he preexisted from eternity as the Son of God, he had no beginning and he has no ending. He became a man. He became something that he never was. And incidentally, he will be for all eternity the man, Christ Jesus. He, is, he did not cease to be man when he went back to heaven. And he is the God-man. A profound mystery that the Son of God would become a man. He humbled himself. But I suggest to you that what Paul is saying here in verse 8 is not so much that. Although that is true. What he is saying here is that as a man he humbled himself. As a man, he humbled himself. Now imagine that. Here we have the perfect man among imperfect men and women. The perfect man navigating through life in contact with fallen sinners who he knew through and through, the ones that he came to die for. 
And if anyone had the right to assert authority, a rightful authority, if anyone had the right to establish who he was and let other people know who he was and claim a position that was rightfully his, it would have been the Son of God. But as a man, he humbled himself. And he moved among men. And many times he listened to the abuse of men and the criticisms of men. Think of how he listened to the scribes and the Pharisees and their slanderous remarks about him as they held him of all people in utter contempt. And yet as a man, he humbled himself. He personified, he demonstrated in lowliness of mind. He esteemed others better than himself. He was the servant to all. That it was nothing was done through strife or vain glory. The Lord of glory. There would be nothing vain about his glory. And he had that right. And yet, as a man, he humbled himself. Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Because of the submission of Christ. Secondly, we are to act this way because of the seriousness of salvation. The seriousness of salvation. Notice verse 12, he says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now he does not say work for your salvation. That, of course, is a false idea uh, that, have been, that has been foisted on the minds of men, even originating from so-called religious and even Christian teachings. And we'll look at that a little more when we get to chapter 3. People have the idea one can work for salvation. That's not what Paul is saying. He says, work out your salvation. The salvation that you possess in Christ Jesus. That when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we entered into this wonderful thing called salvation. That we have been saved from the penalty of sin. Uh, we have been delivered from the power of darkness. We have the eternal declaration of a right standing before God. We entered into riches we cannot fully tabulate or calculate when we came to know Christ as our Savior. But I wonder, do we take our Christian life seriously? The seriousness of salvation. Paul says, work out your salvation, the implications of what it means to be a Christian, to work it out practically in your day-to-day -day experience. Salvation is not just an insurance policy for eternity. It is not something that we just take and file away uh, for some perhaps future need. It is for the here and now, day by day. Paul says this salvation that you have, work it out, he says, with fear and trembling. 
What does he mean by that? Does he mean that we should uh, be fearful all the time as Christians? Of course not. He's talking about the seriousness of it all. That, that, that sense of fear of God. Uh, it says in Romans, uh, as Paul brings the, uh, uh, his indictment of humanity to a close, proving the guilt of humanity, he sums it all up by quoting one of the Psalms. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And men live today without any sense of the fear of God. Uh, to, to live as if God doesn't exist, to live as if men and women are in control of their own destiny. There is no fear of God. Paul says, work in light of the fear of God, the reverential awe of God, the sense that it is God that is working in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's not the elders that are working in you. It's not the Bible teachers that are working in you. It's not the chapel that's working in you. It is God that is working in you. That's what we looked at last night. He that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And God is at work in the life of every Christian. The question for us this morning is, are we cooperative with God? in that work he is doing in our lives? Are we yielded to God? Are we obedient to God? Are we those who regularly feed on his word? Is the direction of our lives, the way we go about living life, the decisions that we make, are they governed by the authority of God? This is the import, I suggest to you, of Paul's exhortation. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because it is possible for us to be blinded by carnality as Christians. It is possible for us to be blinded by the natural man. Even though we are genuinely born again, our spiritual lives can, can amount to almost nothing if we are not cooperative with the Lord. It's possible to squander away the life that God intends for you and for me. And sad to say, the history of the church is littered with case studies of those who have done such a thing, who have put their faith in Christ, no doubt genuine believers, but have squandered all that God has given them. And one of the characteristics of a spiritually minded Christian, a Christian who is truly walking with the Lord, is not so much how busy they might be in Christian service, although that might be true, but the key thing that Paul mentions here is that they're characterized by those who, in lowliness of mind, esteem other better than themselves. The one who is cooperating with God, he says, should manifest this characteristic, the seriousness of your salvation. It's possible, sad to say, for many Christians simply not to be serious about their Christian lives, to be careless about their Christian lives, to go along with the flow of this world, and yes, give lip service to the truth of the gospel, but in reality there is little practical evidence of maturing in the things of God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you, 
both to will and to do of his good pleasure. The strange thing about a Christian who squanders his life for God is that he is missing out on so much. You would think the Christian life is a terrible thing. You would think following the Lord is a terrible thing. What's a terrible thing is to be fooled into thinking we're going to find satisfaction in the world. The world's going to leave you empty. It will love you and leave you. It will leave you hanging. It will leave you empty. It will leave you disappointed. But to pursue a life of obedience to the Lord, despite its challenges, despite its difficulties, despite its trials, despite its testings, Despite its tears, it is God doing His will to do of His good pleasure. The Lord will never intend harm in your life. And even though He might allow things that are difficult, He will never, never intend harm in your life. And He will always bring you to the very best place possible. A call to humility in light of the seriousness of salvation. And then thirdly, we notice a call to humility and lowliness in in light of the sacrifice of Paul. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. It has been pointed out by many commentators that one of the prominent ideas in Paul's letter to the Philippians is that of joy. And here we find Paul rejoicing in the sacrifice and service of your faith. Now, you can hardly detect it as you read this letter, but as Paul writes this letter, he's in prison in Rome. Uh, He is really uh, incarcerated for the sake of the gospel. And, and yet, it, you, you can hardly detect it. As you read through this letter, you would think Paul was sitting on the deck of a, of a cruise ship uh, writing to his beloved Philippians. And this is what he's saying. Yea, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. Very dignified language, but really what he's saying is that, that my life is at risk here. And, and eventually, not in this imprisonment, but a subsequent imprisonment, He did lose his life for the cause of Christ. He died a martyr's death. He was executed under under the Roman Roman rule for his witness for Christ. If I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith. You know, I, I run into Christians from time to time who can't get up on a Sunday morning to come and remember the Lord because it's too early. I don't know what time they start work, Monday to Friday, but... They can't get out of bed on a Sunday morning. They can't get out to prayer meeting because they've got a headache. That's what the Lord made Tylenol for. I always talk to people about their prayer meeting headaches. These are headaches that start about 10 to 7 and are magically gone by about 20 to 8, you know. Couldn't make it out to the meeting. You know, this kind of living seems foreign. We often cave at the least little inconvenience. If I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. The Philippians were concerned about Paul in prison. And Paul is sitting in prison, not unaware of the danger he was in, yet nonetheless saw the whole thing as sacrifice for the service of Christ. And he says, I joy and rejoice that my life might be spent 
for the service of Christ. This perhaps is the secret of the power that lay in this man's ministry. He was completely void of any self-interest. There was not the shadow of self-interest in the life of this man, Paul. His life was poured out in sacrificial service for God. I rejoice, I rejoice in the sacrifice and service of your faith. How then can we not do any less in our walk? And walk in humility and lowliness in service in light of the sacrifice of Paul. Fourthly, in light of the selflessness of Timothy. The selflessness of Timothy. Verse 19, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Now notice what Paul says of Timothy here in verse 20. This is quite a statement. For I have no man like-minded, no man, who will naturally care for your state. For all, for all, seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. Now here we have the very first century here we have Paul still living. Here we have these early churches just being established. And already, already a wave of indifference has swept across these first century believers. I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state, for all seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. I wonder, could that be said of your life and mine? For all seek their own, and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. What are the things of Jesus Christ's? What are his interests in this world that we are called to attend to? His business things that are important to him. What are the things of Jesus Christ? Well, certainly we could say the gospel, the gospel of Christ, as we read in the book of Romans. He is interested in the spread of the gospel. I wonder, are we interested in the spread of the gospel? Are we interested in being made available to communicate uh, the truth of the gospel? Paul has already said in the previous verses uh, that we shine, he says in verse 15, uh, that we are the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. How true that is in our present day. Among whom ye shine as lights in the world. That we are lights as to the saving power and truth of the gospel in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. That the world has become crooked and perverse and it is out of step with the truth and power of the gospel. And that message is communicated through the lives of individual believers that we are walking about as lights in the midst of darkness. Now, I know the world generally does not assess us that way. They do not look on us that way. 
In fact, if you do shine for Christ, uh, you may invite the contempt of your fellow citizens who, who think you as a Christian are nothing more than a pain in, an, in the neck. We see this in the popular press, that, that those who, who like to control the, uh, the discussion of the public square become annoyed as Christian influence is brought to bear, for example, in the political process. We shine as lights in the world in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. The gospel, the spread of the gospel, is one of the interests of our Lord Jesus Christ, that he is presently advancing in the age in which we live. His primary work in this era of history is the spread of the gospel. But as Paul said of his day, all seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ's. And Timothy was a sharp contrast to that general trend. Timothy stood out quite different than what was becoming popular in the minds of many, the attitude of many. And, and he rose as one who was willing not to seek his own things. Timothy was not madly pursuing his own self-interest, but he was pursuing the interests of Jesus Christ. And that's a challenge for all of us, to rise up in our generation and in our day, be those who stand boldly for Christ, to shine as lights in the world, and to pursue to the best of our God-given ability, to the extent and sphere in which God calls us to serve, to shine as those lights and promote the interests of Jesus Christ. Is there anything else that is the interests of Jesus Christ? Well, we could say the church is the interests of Jesus Christ. What did he say? Matthew 16, I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is his primary work in this era of history in which we live. God's primary interest in this era of history is not with the nation of Israel. God's focus is not on the nation of Israel. Now, God has not forgotten the nation of Israel, and he will make good the promises that were made by the Old Testament prophets with the nation of Israel. And he has great purposes and plans for the nation of Israel yet in a future day. There is going to be a tremendous purging of that nation, there is going to be a tremendous repentance of that nation. They will, as Zechariah tells us, they are going to look on him whom they have pierced. There will be individual repentance. There will be national repentance. The nation will turn and one day will bow at the feet of Jesus of Nazareth. And they will declare him to be their promised Messiah. And God has great purposes yet to unfold with the nation of Israel in human history. But that's not his primary work now. His work in this present era is not so much among the nations. God is not working so much among the nations. There is coming a day in the millennial reign of Christ when God is going to work among the nations 
and the nations will remain. We read in the, in the eternal state at the close of Revelation that the, uh, the, the representatives of the nation come to the eternal city. In other words, they, they retain uh, their distinctive characteristic nationally in the eternal state. And God is going to do a work among the nations during his millennial reign. But that's not his primary purpose now among the nations. His primary purpose is the building of his church. I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing now. He is calling men and women out of this world, the ecclesia, the church, the calling out. He is calling men and women out of this world through the preaching of the gospel and bringing them into this body the church, of which this local church and your local church, if you don't attend here regularly, and local churches all over the world, local assemblies, called out companies of believers in Christ, this is a work of God. This is why we are called to give ourselves sacrificially to the service of God in the local church. Are you committed to your local assembly? I'm so glad to see so many young people here at this conference. Even though your singing's terrible. <laughs> it makes us old people feel good that we're still needed, you know. But I'm so glad to see so many young people here at this conference. If the Lord doesn't come, you will be the future. And God is charging you now to take up responsibility with commitment to the local assembly, to be devoted to its work and its ministry. It is contrary to popular thinking, where people don't want to be tied down to anything. They don't want to be committed to anything. It's the spirit of the age. We want to be free to move from one thing to another, and we don't want that sense of commitment. But what our Lord Jesus Christ is doing now is he is building his church, and he does it through believers who are gifted to be workers in that church. And God has given you a special place, a special calling to fulfill. And I believe that, that commitment to, to be committed to the local assembly is a decision that every young person has to make. And it is, is as every much significant as a calling to serve God in the mission field in, the, in some foreign country or to be called into full-time Christian service in some other way. The commitment to serve God in your local assembly is a commitment that many believers have made, particularly when they were young. And they determined that they would bring their families to the meet meetings of the local assembly, that they would, be, they would find a place to serve God. Now, nobody may recognize it as we recognize missionaries who go out, and it's right and good that we do recognize missionaries and the call to full-time service. I'm not minimizing that. But it is just as important to have that commitment before God to say that I believe that God has called me to serve right here at Claremont Bible Chapel. We don't know what the future holds, but God needs men and women of character and commitment 
who will know how to serve without strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, esteeming others better than themselves. Your name might not be written up in magazines and missionary reports. It might not be known by very many people beyond the, uh, this little community, but it will be known by God. And it will give you an opportunity to invest in eternity. All seek their own. Don't allow this life to crowd out the interests of Jesus Christ. All seek their own and not the things which are Jesus Christ. Very quickly, I'll finish the call to humility and service. The service of Epaphroditus. Perhaps up till now, there may have been some in Philippi that were resisting this message. And as they're listening to this letter, they're saying, well, Paul, the example of Christ, that's, 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 that's way up there. That, that's, that's, the, that, that's the supreme example. I don't know if I could follow that. And, and the example of, of Paul, well, Paul was an outstanding missionary statesman. He really lived at a different level. And likewise, Timothy, he may not have been an apostle, but, but, but certainly he, he, he was a man who was, he, he was just cut from a different cloth. But now he brings it right home to Epaphroditus, right? One of their own believers in the, in the Philippian assembly. Epaphroditus may have grown up there, may have gone to Sunday school, may have gone to Awana. I don't think they had Awana in the first century, but who knows? Went to Bible camp, made the crafts with the macaroni and all the other things they do. And I guess they didn't have that back then either. But nonetheless, he may have been one of those who just grew up. And he was a, a, a man who had, had given himself, grew up right among the Philippians. And he gave himself unreservedly for the service of God. He was commissioned, obviously, uh, he was thought well of. He was entrusted by the Philippian assembly to deliver a gift to Paul in Rome. So we have traveled from Philippi and made his way to Rome. And it's not like today where he could go, go on the internet and book, a, book the cheapest flight he could find and get the next flight out to Rome. It would have been an, an arduous journey to go to Rome. And then it would have been a great risk to go to Rome to visit Paul. We can't imagine Paul's imprisonment was like our present-day prison system where you can go and make an appointment during the time and visit those who are in prison. Uh, they wouldn't have had that system. They were very suspicious of Paul, and they were suspicious of those who associated with Paul. And here's a man who shows up uh, with sympathies towards Paul, a man who they were beginning to view as an enemy of the state. And they wondered what else Paul was doing. And this whole Christian movement was thought to be subversive to the state. That's what happens in totalitarian regimes. And it's happened right throughout history. And so Epaphroditus shows up to deliver help to Paul. He took on great risk. Notice how Paul describes him. My brother, companion in labor, fellow so soldier, and your messenger. That is, sent from Philippi, and he ministered to my wants. And then there was a, a little turn of events. Epaphroditus took ill on this journey. He arrived in Rome. You might have thought, well, boy, that's the thanks he gets for Christian service. You know, there are many that engage in Christian service, and it really takes a toll on them. 
We don't know why he took ill. Did he pick up some kind of a, a sickness through traveling, through contact with the area? Did he have some disease? Uh, it was serious enough, for he was sick nigh unto death. It was a life-threatening situation. So he leaves Philippi, he comes to Rome uh, to deliver this gift to Paul, and in the course of those events, he has a life-threatening sickness that overcomes him. And here was a man whose attitude was, not poor me, as I would have been, and I would have written long emails back home, garnering as much sympathy as I could possibly get out of everybody, and you would be hearing about it for the next 25 years and beyond, and the sickness would have got bigger and bigger as I told the story a number of times. But that wasn't Epaphroditus. He was a man who had great care and concern. It says in verse 26, For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness, because that ye had heard that he had been sick. I mean, this was the attitude, this was the mindset of the man. Not his own self-preservation, but he's thinking now the Philippians are going to be concerned about me when they hear this news. You see, it was totally occupied with others and almost nothing occupied with himself. A call to humility. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. Because of the submission of Christ, because of the seriousness of our salvation, because of the sacrifice of Paul, because of the selflessness of Timothy, and because of the service of Epaphroditus. A. A. Whittington wrote these words, Not I, but Christ, be honored, loved, exalted. Not I, but Christ, be seen, be known, be heard. Not I, but Christ, in every look of action. Not I, but Christ, in every thought and word. Oh, to be saved from myself, dear Lord. Oh, to be lost in thee. Oh, that it might be no more I, but Christ that lives in me.